Welcome to the Alexander Standard. Today's episode, Demetrius, Besieger of Cities, Part 1. Welcome to the Alexander Standard, where we rank all the successors of Alexander the Great. From Perticus to Cleopatra the Seventh. My name is Dustin. And I'm Meredith. How you doing, Meredith? I'm good. I've been uh, quite spoiled by a five-day weekend due to snow. Like I said, you're welcome. I'm a wizard. Mm-hmm. I did this. We woke up this morning and I said, We should just cancel. I'm tired of this two-hour delay. Meredith's place of employment didn't even do that. No, I was about to say, uh, you, you didn't wizard anything for me. <laughs> I've only got so much wizarding juice, Meredith. I, I mean, know. You know, if you wizard too much in one day, you can't wizard enough the next day. And then all of a sudden, I'm sitting there like, and then my place of employment's just like, yeah, nobody go to school today. So, anything else going on in our lives worth discussing, talking about? We did things. We went to Disney. Well, that's about it. That is about it. And you know what? That's enough. Because it was uh, the most magical place on earth, man. Mm-hmm. I got to tell you, Meredith, I'm really... I'm really uh, excited about today i say that about all our episodes and that's probably a good sign for our podcast but today you know how long i've been feverishly working on this episode 39 pages on this guy this episode is indicative of why we started doing this podcast because we've been kind of getting through some of the nitty-gritty especially with like the last two or three ones cassandra was a dud his sons sucked and we need to get to some good stories and so when i was writing this one one of the reasons it took so long is I would get to this point where I would just be like, Demetrius, stop doing stuff. But all of it was so freaking hilarious. So I think we got a winner here. It might be a two-parter. I can't wait to see what you think. All right, so source note. Today's main source is the book Demetrius the Besieger, written in 2020 by Pat Wheatley and Charlotte Dunn. Though we will also continue using parts of Billow's Antigonus the One-Eye biography, an indispensable work of scholarship, in order to supplement Wheatley and Dunn. Furthermore, as Wheatley and Dunn themselves note, much of the ancient source material on Demetrius is scant, confusing, and, and unorganized. Aside from two main ancient sources with whom we have become well acquainted here at the Old Standard, and will feature largely in today's episode, Diodorus Siculus and Plutarch. To begin, I can't resist sharing this quote from Wheatley and Dunn regarding the legacy of Demetrius that I think really sums up his character. <clears throat> he consciously strove to model himself on Alexander. Yet ironically, despite holding the royal title from his 30th year onwards, he is generally regarded as one of the most unsuccessful successors. Oh my gosh, that's harsh. Yeah, we're, sorry, we're already starting with a pretty sick burn here. And today, Meredith, we may have several guest stars on our episode. Ooh. But here we go. Etymology. It's pretty simple. Demetrius means of, belonging to, or devoted to, guess who? Demeter. Yeah, who was the Greek goddess of grain and the harvest. But Demetrius also comes with a nickname, Polyorchates, which means the besieger of cities. And we shall certainly find out why in the course of this episode. 
Early life. What do you think I'm going to say? Nothing. Not much is known. But let's expand on that in a word or two, shall we? Whereas usually our lack of knowledge comes from a lack of source material, that's not necessarily or solely the case with Demetrius. As with many of our subjects, Demetrius' early life is overshadowed by more famous figures. On one hand, as Wheatley and Dunn state, Demetrius' later career post-307 was, quote, colorful and extravagant, and is covered in considerable detail. Yet on the other hand, as the authors go on to say, Before this, it is subsumed by the career of his equally famous father, Antigonus Monophthalmos. And of course, during the period of his childhood, all eyes were on Alexander himself. And that really goes to show uh, one of the themes I think we're going to take away from this episode. Meredith, you know I've got a lot of strong opinions. But I will say, I think it must be admitted, I will change my mind if I'm shown contrary evidence. Oh, that's this true. This episode was extremely difficult for me because there were times where I was like, man, I've been too hard on Demetrius. And then I was like, no, I've, I haven't been hard enough. But the best way to put it, I think, is some have said, understandably so, that we've been a little harsh on Alexander at times. And, you know, I get it. He's brilliant. He was super successful. And we take nothing away from his obvious talent. But as I've always said, he was also very reckless and foolhardy. And if he had not had so much good luck, things would look different. Demetrius is what it would look like if a commander who was ridiculously talented but reckless occasionally has bad luck because it definitely comes back to bite you. So, here's what we can glean at least of Demetrius's early life. He was probably born in or around the Macedonian capital of Pella, probably in late 337 or early 336. Now, for some context, at this time, Alexander the Great would have been around 20 and had just started his war against Persia. Demetrius' parents, as we've already seen, were Antigonus Monophthalmos, or the One-Eyed, and a noble lady named Stratonike. But even at his mere birth, we already get an interesting little tidbit about Demetrius. Apparently there was a rumor, not entirely ridiculous, that Demetrius was not Antigonus' son. For you see, Antigonus had a brother mm. named Demetrius, <laughs> yeah, who was originally married to Stratonike. But when this elder Demetrius died in 337, his wife at the time, Stratonike, immediately married his brother, Antigonus. And barely a year later, a wee bear named Demetrius was born. Thus the rumor is that Stratonike was already pregnant with Demetrius when she married Antigonus in 337. And although this was possible, Wheatley and Dunn say it's impossible to prove. Furthermore, even if it was true, it didn't seem to be a big concern to anyone in the Hellenistic world, nor was it even a mark of shame for Demetrius. On one hand, it was kind of common in the ancient world to adopt young, close relatives. Mm -hmm. And our Demetrius himself later adopted his own stepson. On the other hand, Antigonus had a bunch of nephews, so it doesn't make sense why Demetrius would have been picked over all the other ones. So, in the end, who knows, one of the cruel jokes of, the, of studying the ancient world is you can dig and dig and dig and then come up with a very good conclusion, which is simply, we don't know. Moving on, you may also remember that Demetrius had a brother 
named Philip after his grandfather. Note, this is not Philip, the former king of Macedon. This was Demetrius's brother from Antigonus, who was just named Philip because why be creative with names? This Philip was a few years younger than Demetrius, probably born in 334. We will later learn that growing up, Philip was probably the more competent of the two brothers, but Antigonus seems to have doted on Demetrius. As a final note here, the fact that Demetrius and Philip were born around 337 to 334, respectively, is significant, especially for their lives. This was the start of Alexander's campaign into Asia, of which their dad, Antigonus, was going to play a large part. This meant that, unlike Cassander, <coughs> Demetrius and Philip weren't going to be raised in Macedon for long, but were instead destined to go east with their dad into Asia. Imagine how most have felt for Cassander. All of his friends were going to their equivalent of like going to an internship with their dad. And he looks at his dad and says, Dad, can I go now? He's like, no, yes, they here. Be back. And I realized I did three voices there. But you know what? It was traumatic for Cassander. Makes him do different voices. Interesting new I know. I'm workshopping a few different ones. Yeah. And when I say workshop, that's just French for I had nothing prepared ahead of time. As we recall from Big Dad's episode, Antigonus was pretty soon given the governorship of a lucrative and strategic and important satrapy of Greater Phrygia, the west-central region of Anatolia, or modern-day Turkey. Though this was soon expanded to include the regions of Lycia and Pamphylia in the south. Wheatley and Dunn state that Antigonus had fully pacified the region by 330, which is likely the time that Stratonike, along with little Demetrius and Philip, were brought over to live with Antigonus as one big happy family. Demetrius would have been around six at the time. The fact is that he was born and raised in a period of conquest and upheaval, a dynamic period of history that no doubt had a profound effect on his upbringing and training, his perspectives on the world, and his ambition as he grew into adulthood. One anecdote we do have of Demetrius's youth is something we saw from our episode on Antigonus. As you may recall, the biographer Plutarch told a story where Antigonus was meeting with his ambassadors from some of his rivals like Ptolemy or Cassander, when all of a sudden, Demetrius walked into the tent, fresh from the hunt and fully armed. Without even taking a moment to put his weapons away, Demetrius strode right over to Antigonus and gave his dear old dad a welcome home kiss. Antigonus thereafter immediately told those ambassadors. What do you think? You want to finish the story? Yeah, well, he, he's pointing out like how well ordered his faction is because he can like hang out around his son with his son holding weapons and everything. I was mainly just starting to kind of flashback to how much they kissed Antigonus. Hey, it's just episode. like we were watching 90 Day Fiance with Sarper. He's like, this is... Oh, gosh. He's like, don't hey. kiss him on the cheek. And he goes like, yeah. this is... Yeah, and they're in Turkey. So, mm-hmm. that has nothing to do with this, but it's an awesome coincidence. <laughs> so, like you said, Antigonus looks at those ambassadors and like, you go back and tell your bosses that this was a symbol of strength in my regime. That I'm not afraid of my son assassinating me. I trust him. And the reason I give you that story now is because Wheatley and Dunn point out that although the story is impossible to date with certainty, it likely took place somewhere between 320 and 314. Aside from the chronological ambiguities, the story also demonstrates, quote, that Demetrius received a stable and affectionate upbringing, 
and indeed, the sources are unanimous regarding the devotion of the Antigonids toward each other. So, as Wheatley and Dunn point out then, while Demetrius' brother uh, may not have had a royal upbringing, they had a good life. So, we skip ahead a bit to 322 to 321. Wheatley and Dunn state that the very first historical reference to Demetrius was by our dear old friend, Diodorus Siculus. As we recall, back in 322, Demetrius' dad, Antigonus, got into a beef with a doofus named Perdiccas, who was at that time regent of the kings and commander of Alexander's empire. Antigonus had not shown up when summoned by Perdiccas. Oh, by the way, Alexander the Great is dead now. Don't know if we ever mentioned that. Moving right along. And so eventually, Perdiccas came a-calling for Antigonus to answer for his disobedience. In response, Antigonus said, nope, and ran over to Macedon to join Antipater and Craterus. According to Diodorus, when Antigonus made his secret nighttime escape by ship, first to Athens of all places, Demetrius was right there along with him. He would have been around 15 or 16 at the time. For the next two years, from 321 to 320, we have scant references to Demetrius, but it seems that he stayed with his father Antigonus. Antigonus joined the alliance of Antipater, Craterus, and now Ptolemy. All four of them set out to attack Perdiccas and his forces in Asia. Antigonus himself crossed back into Anatolia to attack Perdiccas' allies in the southern regions of Caria and Lydia, and then left with a fleet to assault the island of Cyprus. From a very brief reference in Plutarch, who refers to Antigonus speaking directly to Demetrius while on this actual campaign, we are able to infer with some confidence that Demetrius had followed his dad back into Anatolia. Meanwhile, Antipater was taking the main anti-Perdican army by land south through Anatolia down into Phoenicia, modern-day Syria and Lebanon, in order to catch up to Perdiccas' army in Egypt. Well, things took a bit of a turn. By mid-320, Perdiccas had done gotten himself killed in Egypt while trying to cross the Nile to attack Ptolemy. Something-something crocodiles. This allowed everyone some breathing room. Antipater halted at a place called Triparadesus, three parks in Phoenicia. Antigonus was, at the time, heading toward the island of Cyprus. So he just kept on going east past the island and crossed into Phoenicia to join up with Antipater's camp. Here, at Triparadesus, now that Perdiccas was dead... Antipater was now declared to be the new regent of the kings and commander of the empire. I'm telling you all these details so that we know where everyone was on the chessboard, because an important event in Demetrius' life takes place here at Triparadesos. As we've seen in previous episodes, most recently in Cassander's episode, part of the settlements at Triparadesos involved a lot of political marriages. First among these was the marriage between Antipater's eldest daughter, Phila, and a young man named Demetrius. So let's talk about Phila for a minute. She's been with us since the first few episodes of our wonderful podcast. Her first marriage was with a guy named Balakros. I think that's an awesome name. In 332, one of Alexander the Great's bodyguards. We're unsure as to the exact date of his death, but it would have been sometime around 328 or 322. In six years. Next, in 322, Phila married Crateros, who had been one of Alexander's most famous generals, but unfortunately died in battle against Eumenes in 321. See our episode on our best boy, Eumenes, for that story. So now, in 320, she remarried for a third and final time to a young, possibly 18-year-old Demetrius. 
According to Wheatley and Dunn, Fila was probably around 35 years old at the time. Demetrius wasn't thrilled at the prospect of the marriage, probably because of the age difference. When he protested, however, Antigonus supposedly whispered in his son's ear a paraphrased verse from the playwright Euripides, saying something like, When it's profitable, a man has to marry against his nature. In other words, sometimes you gotta do what you gotta do. And I think every bride loves it when her husband-to-be has to be told something like that by his dad. As Wheatley and Dunn state in regard to this marriage, quote, Demetrius had reluctantly become a diplomatic pawn. This is because the marriage to Phila was an important step in solidifying the alliance between Antipater and Antigonus, since they were two of the most powerful and influential commanders in the empire. Despite their age difference and Demetrius's later dumbassery, including his many infidelities, Phila was steadfastly loyal to her husband and a source of wise counsel to him for the rest of her life. She also, rather immediately, bore two children with Demetrius, who are going to be very important to our later episodes. Stratonike, the eldest, was born the same year of their marriage in 320, a year later. In 319, their son was born. Antigonus II, Gonatas. I know, yeah, they have no creativity with their names. I was so excited with that girl's name. I was like, all right, we're getting something different. We've already seen what happens next. From 320 to 319, Antipater proceeded back towards Macedon with the two kings in tow. Dun, dun, dun. Antigonus was given command in the east to continue operations against the remaining Perdican loyalists, now led by our best boy, Eumenes. By early 319, Antipater and Antigonus, along with their respective armies, are mentioned as being together in the Anatolian region of Phrygia for one last time. The significance here, as you may recall, is that Phrygia was Antigonus's old satrapy but he had to flee a couple of years ago at the approach of Perdiccas. Thus, as Wheatley and Dunn point out, Demetrius, who would have been around 18 or so at this time, was finally back in his childhood home, now with his new wife, daughter, and soon-to-be infant son. It's kind of like, you know, kind of wholesome. He's back home finally. So he's immediately going to leave. We don't know uh, for sure what he was doing for the next two years around 319 to 318, but it's extremely likely that he joined his father on the campaigns against Eumenes, especially because he does pop up at the Battle of Paraitikoni in 317. Antigonus was one of the big power players in the empire now, and he wanted to make sure his sons were getting the training and experience they needed to get them ready for their own careers. In fact, I got a quote here from Wheatley and Dunn that sums up the situation perfectly. It's a Pretty big quote, but I beg your patience. There can be little doubt that the young man established himself as a rising star during the campaigning seasons of 318 and 317, if not before, and was popular with the army. His youthful beauty and mildness, or gentleness, his praotes, being an effective counterpart to the wily, aged Antigonus. The intimacy between the Antigonids, also illustrated anecdotally in the sources, must have reinforced the troops, the dynastic implications of Antigonus's bid for power. The one-eyed old general, with his brilliant and promising young son, and by now, grandson as well, can hardly have failed to evoke among the veterans memories of Philip and Alexander. After the latter's disastrous failure to secure the succession, this would have been welcome 
to both the Macedonian and Persian contingents of the army. It is against this backdrop that Demetrius's role in the great battles of the Second Diadoch War should be examined. But in 317, now likely at the age of 20, Demetrius pops back up in the sources in command of the elite cavalry, the Hittiroi, on the right flank of Antigonus's army at the Battle of Paraitakani, in the center of Persia, modern-day Iran, against Yemenis. Interestingly, though, even though Demetrius was at the head of his cavalry corps, Antigonus was also on the right flank with the elephants, and in overall command on the right wing, probably there to support his son. What we're getting at here, according to Wheatley and Dunn, was that Antigonus was intentionally letting Demetrius have his own time in the spotlight, but he was nearby in case anything went wrong. In any event, Antigonus lost the battle, but apparently Demetrius did really well. Antigonus's left flank and center did poorly against Eumenes' infantry, the infamous silver shields. But the cavalry under the command of Demetrius and Antigonus successfully pushed back Eumenes' left flank which allowed Antigonus's forces to make a rather safe retreat into Medea, kind of the north. But despite this action-packed appearance in 317, Demetrius then again falls off the map, so to speak, for over a year. Because we don't see him again until 316, or early 315, at the Battle of Gabiana in central Persia. This battle is actually an indication of how well Demetrius did in the previous engagement at Paraitakani in 317. Because this time at Gabiana in 316-315, Demetrius got a promotion and was in command of the entire right wing of Antigonus's army, not just the cavalry corps. Thus, Demetrius must have done something good at Paraitakani. The Battle of Gabiana ended up being similar to Paraitakani two years before. The infantry at Antigonus' center was soundly defeated again by Eumenes' silver shields. But, from what we can tell, Demetrius did very well in facing off directly against Eumenes, both of whom were in command of their main cavalry contingents. Meanwhile, the saving grace for Antigonus in the whole battle was that he was able to direct a cavalry raid and seize Eumenes' baggage train. So it's his fault. God dang it. Oh, that we lost our best boy, Eumenes? Yes. Yeah, basically, he did it. He captured the baggage train, or he directed the cavalry raid that did it. And this was the pivot point. Despite winning the battle, the Silver Shields and their commanders threw a tantrum at having their lost their baggage train and betrayed Eumenes by turning him over to Antigonus. According to Plutarch, most of the people in Antigonus's camp wanted to execute Eumenes immediately. But supposedly, Demetrius was one of the few who begged his father to spare Eumenes' life. And while that might give you some points in Demetrius's, Go ahead. Well, I, I think we're headed to the same place because for those that haven't listened to Eumenes' episode, sparing his life equated to just locking him in a cell and starving him to death. Well, that... That was what Antigonus was going to do, and that thankfully a, a guard apparently said that's cruel and thought the more humane thing was to just strangle Eumenes. Yes, that's good memory. Yep, that's a terrible way to go. Regardless, you'll be happy to know that apparently Demetrius had no role in any of that nonsense. What I was going to do in case that that endeared you to Demetrius a little bit was then destroy that 
enthusiasm and point out that Wheatley and Dunn question the validity of Plutarch's account and ultimately say there's no way of knowing if Demetrius ever said that. He had no reason to like Eumenes, but who knows. In any case, Demetrius had undeniably played a key role in two major battles that resulted in the end of the Second War of the Diadochoi from 318 to 315. Once again, just like the previous two, after this big battle, Demetrius falls off the radar for possibly a year or so until he pops back up in 314. We can assume, however, that he stayed with his dad, Antigonus, who now moved back west to Babylon, where he had a tense discussion with the governor there, Seleucus, who then booked it straight to Ptolemy. And then after moving on from Babylon, Antigonus continued apparently to Cilicia, which is in southern Anatolia. And by spring of 315, Antigonus was now moving down into Upper Syria when he received the ultimatum from Ptolemy, Lysimachus, and Cassander, demanding that Antigonus share the spoils he had accumulated in his war against Eumenes. And as we know, Antigonus said hell to the no to these demands, which immediately commenced in the Third War of the Diadochoi, which lasted from 315 to 311. We don't have a direct mention of Demetrius, but we can assume he probably joined his father, who immediately began operations against Ptolemy in Syria, Phoenicia, and Palestine. After successfully taking Tyre in the summer of 314, Antigonus was compelled to return back north to Anatolia in response to some attacks by Cassander and the rest of the coalition. Consequently, Antigonus gave Demetrius his very first solo command, entrusting his son to carry on the war against Ptolemy and defend Phoenicia and Palestine. He would have been 22 years old at the time. Even though Antigonus felt that the situation in Phoenicia was relatively secure, the fact that he left Demetrius in complete control of the region clearly speaks to a great deal of trust he had in his son. Pretty big deal. You know, when I was 22, I was working at Disney World. I don't have a lot of memories of when I was 22, and I think that says more about my life. <laughs> and I'm a little ashamed. But to your point, neither of us were in control of Phoenicia. You, you could have done a good job. I think you could command an army, Meredith. I just would be stressed out the entire time. Like, the job would get done, and arguably it would get done well, but at what cost to my mental health? Yeah, it's like that, that Roman Emperor Valentinian who busted a blood vessel when he was yelling at barbarians and died. Yeah, I favorite story just like you son of a <laughs> no i i internalized my stress so my equivalent to him would just be you turn around it's like oh she's dead <laughs> oh it's like when um when you got into your car accident because your vagus nerve was like hey let's take a nap in the driver's seat so you'd be like charging into battle on top of your horse and all of a sudden you would just fall off fall off yeah yeah so at first the Phoenician front was quiet for about over a year. By 313, however, Ptolemy began launching naval raids on Antigonid positions in Cilicia, that's southeastern Anatolia, and upper Syria. Demetrius tried to respond to these attacks, but Ptolemy was always too fast for him. These skirmishes were a mere prelude, however, to a major confrontation between Demetrius and Ptolemy, the Battle of Gaza in the year 312. The Battle of Gaza was a test for Demetrius. And he failed that test. Aww. After initial skirmishes, Ptolemy went back to Egypt and gathered his full forces to attack Demetrius at Gaza. According to Diodorus, Demetrius' commanders actually encouraged him not to face off against Ptolemy. 
and Seleucus, who was also there at the time. Remember, they're, they're buddies right now, Seleucus and Ptolemy. Ptolemy and Seleucus were seasoned, undefeated commanders who had ridden with Alexander the Great. Furthermore, Ptolemy's forces outnumbered Demetrius. Nevertheless, Demetrius persisted. He was young, impetuous, and he wanted to prove himself. Well, essentially nothing went his way in the battle. It seems like his infantry held its ground for a while, but Ptolemy and Seleucus were able to rout Demetrius's elephants and his cavalry, forcing Demetrius to call for a retreat. Even more embarrassingly, and remember the whole point of uh, Agabiana of stealing the baggage train? Check this out. Ptolemy was able to secure the entire baggage train belonging to Demetrius's army. But you're never going to believe what happens next. Instead of capitalizing on it, Ptolemy sent back the entirety of Demetrius's baggage train. And then had a message and said, we're, f we're not fighting over trivial things like money. We're fighting for our share of the entire empire. Is that supposed to be like a know your place little boy type of message? Yeah, I always took it that way. It was kind of like a slap in the face because it was like, I don't care about your money. Take your money. I'm in control of Egypt, okay? I don't need money. I'll never need money. I got giant triangles in my backyard. You think I care about money, kid? Check out my crocodiles. In any case, this was embarrassing for Demetrius. He lost Phoenicia and Palestine in one battle, and he had to retreat north into Syria and send a request for his dad, Antigonus, to come help. To be fair, however, the sources do say that Demetrius didn't panic, but he kept his cool while waiting on Antigonus' arrival, even defeating one of Ptolemy's generals in the process. This brings us to 311. Now, as we may recall, around this time, Ptolemy was supporting Seleucus' attempt to retake Babylon. And indeed... Although Seleucus deserves credit for his fancy footwork and sneaking into Babylon with a crack force, Demetrius' defeat at Gaza will have significantly cleared the way into Babylon for Seleucus. But, as we said, Demetrius retreated north, prompting his dad, Antigonus, to come back south to his son's rescue. And indeed, Antigonus did succeed in pushing Ptolemy's forces back, without even a fight. Ptolemy decided it wasn't even worth it, and he just withdrew back into Egypt. Then, maybe as a way to regain his confidence, Antigonus also ordered Demetrius to conduct a raid against the Nabataeans in modern-day Jordan. Well, the raid went about as well as you'd expect whenever someone is sent to chase an enemy into the desert. Looking at you, Crusades. That's right, Meredith's like dying laughing now. Well, Demetrius suffered heavy casualties and pretty soon was running low on supplies. Like water. And this happened... Because he killed Eumenes, who could have been the greatest administration planner of this whole expedition. If he had a Eumenes in his camp, he would have had like a Brita water filter. He would have mm -hmm. had everything, dude. Everything. He would have built a city in the desert. He would have, Eumenes would have looked like, hey man, you see them rocks? There's water in there. Eumenes would have been the one who discovered the elusive Jordanian water rock. Well, yeah, so Demetrius is chasing the Nabataeans in modern-day Jordan, and he runs out of water. Eventually, he was compelled to make peace with the Nabataeans and withdraw back toward the coast in Phoenicia. Like, there's a recording of their speech where, like, the Nabataeans, like, are running away from him, pulling him in, and finally they send him a message, and they're like, Dude, what are you doing? We don't even know you. Go back home. And apparently, uh, Antigonus was upset with Demetrius for making this treaty saying essentially that it made him look weak because he had let the enemy go. And indeed, the very next year, the Nabataeans started attacking Antigonid forces near the Dead Sea. But even Antigonus at this point just gave up on it and just left him alone. Nevertheless, 
After stabilizing his front in Syria and Phoenicia, we then know that Antigonus made a truce with Lysimachus, Cassander, and Ptolemy that ended the Third Diadoch War, with little accomplished for either side. But as we also know, Antigonus really did this because he had bigger fish to fry. Seleucus had succeeded in taking control of Babylon, thereby threatening all of Antigonus's eastern holdings. So this truce with Ptolemy, Cassander, and Lysimachus freed Antigonus's hand to concentrate on Seleucus. And that's exactly what he did, leading to the Babylonian War of 311 to 309. The next year then, in 310, Antigonus gave his son a new job, to take a significant army and knock Seleucus out of Babylon. Demetrius is like only one for three right now. He needs a confidence boost. Should be easy, right? Seleucus had only set out to retake Babylon with a thousand men. Yeah, he swelled his numbers along the way. But the point is, is that Demetrius was being sent with a 20,000 strong army. Retaking Babylon should have been no problem. And indeed, Demetrius succeeded in taking Babylon. Kind of. Kind of. Yeah. You see, Seleucus wasn't there. And his generals were smart enough to withdraw into the citadels in the city and hunker down against Demetrius. To be fair, again, Demetrius did succeed in taking one of the citadels. But, and I think this is kind of indicative of his, like, future habits. Instead of staying and finishing the job, he left behind around six or 7,000 troops to complete the siege and went back to rejoin his dad. Gosh, I, I, I hope Seleucus doesn't just come back and retake the city with a bigger army. That would be the worst. Well, and see, I was just thinking like, oh, six to 7,000, that's a pretty good size force to leave behind, yeah. but apparently not. But hey, Demetrius is two for four now. Things are looking better. And then once again, when he got back home in the West, he even went and retook several cities in Cilicia from Ptolemy. All right, Demetrius. Now he's three for five. He's on a roll. Things are looking up. Well, from 310 to 309, we don't have much about Demetrius. We do know, however, that by 309, big Papa Bear Antigonus felt compelled to complete the siege of Babylon that Demetrius had left unfinished. This time, however, Dad couldn't fix everything. Antigonus wasn't able to knock Seleucus out of Babylon either. In fact, after being defeated by Seleucus in a successful night attack, Antigonus was compelled to sign a peace treaty and cede the entire eastern half of the empire to Seleucus in 309. I do remember that from Antigonus's episode, and wasn't it kind of of the opinion of like, yes, on paper, that's a defeat and that's bad, but it was almost kind of more like trimming the fat of the territory they did have? Sort of, yeah. It was like, you're giving away a huge chunk of the empire. Like, if you were to look at the entire Alexandrian or Persian empire, basically, Seleucus has just carved off half of it. But it's the most expensive half. Mm -hmm. I mean, he's got all that open territory, a lot of frontier area. He's got uh, nomadic peoples in the north. It's hard to hold these areas. He's got to deal with India now in the far east. Like, Seleucus himself is not going to be able to keep hold of everything. And the core of the empire, at least to Antigonus, is still intact. He's got all of Anatolia. He's got most of Syria and Phoenicia and Palestine, a lot of the Euphrates region. He's still number one. And he doesn't have to deal with this stuff that Seleucus has to deal with now. So, yeah, it's balanced. So, like we said, nevertheless, Antigonus was still the power player. Now, I have to do something that I don't like which is admit that I may be wrong about something. I laugh at Demetrius a lot, but I think I need to give him some credit here. 
Wheatley and Dunn make a strong case that while Antigonus was in Babylon fighting Seleucus, Demetrius did a very good job of maintaining the western reaches of the kingdom against the machinations of Cassander and Ptolemy. To quote the authors, The years 310 to 308 were disastrous for the Antigonate fortunes, and it is testimony to the competence of Demetrius that his father was able to return from Babylonia at some stage in late 309 or 308 to any possessions at all in Asia Minor. Moving on to 307, peace doesn't last forever, unfortunately, especially in the Hellenistic world. Two years after concluding the Babylonian War, conflicts broke out again in 307, sparking the fourth and final War of the Diadochoi, which lasted until 301. It seems that Demetrius was instrumental in the opening salvos of this war. Antigonus' first move was going to be to try and kick Cassander out of Greece. So, thus it was then that Antigonus sent Demetrius with 4,000 talents of gold, a fleet of 250 ships, and a large army to retake Athens and its port city, the Piraeus. And indeed, Demetrius sailed right into the Piraeus and proclaimed that he was there to liberate Athens from the domination of Cassander's faction. When they heard this, most of the city surrendered immediately and welcomed Demetrius with open arms. The pro-Cassander faction tried to dig in and fight, but they were ultimately unsuccessful. And indeed, Demetrius then went on to liberate, in quotes, several other Greek cities held by pro-Cassander forces. One thing to emphasize here is that this conquest or seizure of Athens and the liberation of these Greek cities may be when Demetrius started getting his reputation for siege warfare. Diodorus specifically states that along with his naval and land forces, Demetrius took a lot of siege weapons on his campaign into Greece. Furthermore, when Demetrius was besieging the Piraeus, Athens's port city, he basically shelled one of the citadels for two days straight with ballistae and catapults, which destroyed huge chunks of the wall. Returning to the city of Athens, Demetrius announced that they were free, including the right to live under their own laws and government, and promised that Antigonus was even going to send them food and enough wood to build a fleet of 100 triremes. You started laughing. No, it's reminding me a little bit of my tactics when I play Age of Empires 2. I just build up like 12 trebuchets and I take them around with me everywhere and I just hammer every city to the ground. Mm. But I'm not trying to live in them afterwards. And then walk in there and be like, all right, you're free now. My children. Hello. <laughs> I, yes, I, I have destroyed your houses, and now you are free from the domination of roofs. Again, the Athenians were all about this life, and they hurled extravagant honors on both Demetrius and Antigonus. And get ready, because you're about to get... Not the League of Corinth. No, 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 we're not there yet. Oh, okay. But these honors that they, they heaped upon Demetrius? Yes. It's a giant list, and you're going to get sick. <laughs> and I... I'm going to make you as sick as I can with this list. I'm ready. Well, Plutarch overall says that the Athenians rendered Demetrius, quote, odious and obnoxious by the extravagance of the honors which they voted on him. Supposedly, the Athenians were the first to call Antigonus and Demetrius kings, even before Antigonus and Demetrius themselves had done it. Next, they declared Antigonus and Demetrius to be a, a kind of guardian gods of Athens and gave them the nickname Soter, or Savior. Every year was named after a priest that they would annually elect to worship Demetrius and Antigonus. 
There was a sacred robe that was traditionally draped over the statue of Athena every five years, which contained images of, of the other gods. Well, Demetrius and Antigonus were added to this robe. The place where Demetrius first landed was consecrated as a sacred altar. The Athenians created two new voting tribes, like districts today, which they named Demetrios and Antigonus. But wait, there's more. It gets so much worse. Whenever ambassadors were sent to Demetrius or Antigonus, they were to be treated like sacred priests. Whenever Demetrius visited Athens, he was to receive the same honors that were given to the gods Demeter and Dionysus, and it was paid for by the citizens. In fact, a contest was put into place to honor the citizen who gave the most in their dedication to Demetrius. You're going to love this next part. Here we go. The month of Monachion was changed to Demetrion. The first and last day of the month were both called Demetrios. The festival, previous called the Dionysia, was now called the Demetria. The last motion, which Plutarch says was more strange and monstrous than any other, was that the Athenians would treat Demetrius like an oracle and ask for his advice on all things. Not a counselor, not an advisor. An oracle. Remember, Plutarch started this list by pointing out that it rendered Demetrius odious and obnoxious. He concludes this list by reiterating, With such mockery of adulation, they finally perverted the man's mind. Which even before was not wholly sound. <laughs> but we'll be right back after these messages. This summer, totally not on Bravo. Come see the trashiest TV ever fished out of the Aegean Sea. You've seen Real Housewives. You've seen Sister Wives. You've seen The Bachelor. But now we found the bottom of the barrel and dug even deeper. Come join the Royal Housewives of Macedon, where we put five wives and two girlfriends under the same roof to fight for the affections of the same handsome doofus. Come watch these noble and ambitious women navigate the fickle field of royal politics. But who can win the ultimate prize? A disappointing and short life with King Demetrius, the besieger of cities. Meet Phila, the dutiful daughter of Antipater. I'm not angry. I'm just disappointed in all of you. Eurydice, but not the famous one. I never asked for this. And I think the people forget that I'm here. Daedamea, the Epirot princess. I may have starved at Pydna, but I'm eating like a queen at Athens. Lanasa, a former Epirot queen. I hated polygamy, but this polygamy's my choice. And Ptolemaeus, one of Ptolemy's daughters. Yeah, he's my uncle, but at least he's not my brother because apparently that's a thing now. But also there's Lamia, the musical courtesan. I play the flute and my favorite key, D. <laughs> and Demomania, the voluptuous rival mistress. They say a picture's worth a thousand words, but this booty's worth a thousand pictures. This week, tempers erupt when Lamia reveals a dirty secret about Demo. He does not love any of you the way he loves me. Whatever, Lamia. At least I'm not a gold-digging grandma. You literally slept with his dad. <laughs> uh, 
Allegedly. But no one can shake Lenasa's eternal optimism. I don't know what everybody's problem is. I love having sister wives. But who can complete the siege of Demetrius's heart? Find out this season on Royal Housewives of Macedon. Totally not on Bravo. And we're back. Athens is gonna be a, turn out to be a recurring pivot point in Demetrius' career. You're gonna love this next part. The same year, 307, while in Athens, Demetrius took inspiration from Cody Brown of TLC's Sister Wives, and he decided to add another wife to his repertoire. Thus, Demetrius married a lady named Eurydice. Not the former queen, but a lady who was supposedly descended from a famous Greek general, Miltiades, who had fought against the Persians 200 years ago. But, to be fair, Demetrius couldn't rest on his laurels, because instructions from his dad, Antigonus, soon arrived, directing Demetrius to attack the island of Cyprus, which was under the control of Ptolemy. This brings us to 306. On the way to Cyprus... Demetrius was also instructed by dad to stop and try to get the support of the Greek island city of Rhodes, which he did. Unfortunately, the Rhodians said no. They were loyal to Ptolemy, and they refused to switch sides. Okay, no problem. Despite this setback, Demetrius continued in his mission. And then, pretty soon, he arrived at Cyprus and immediately besieged the chief city on the island, Salamis, which was commanded by Ptolemy's brother, Menelaus. Once again, we see evidence of Demetrius's penchant for siege warfare. According to Diodorus, Since Demetrius saw that the city of the Salaminians was not to be despised, and that a large force was in the city defending it, he determined to prepare siege engines of very great size, catapults for shooting bolts of ballistae of all kinds, and the other equipment that would strike terror. He sent for skilled workmen from Asia, and for iron, likewise for a large amount of wood, and for the proper complement of other supplies. When everything was made ready for him, he constructed a device called the Helepolis, the City Taker, which had a length of 45 cubits, 66 feet, on each side, and a height of 90 cubits, 132 feet. It was divided into nine stories, and the whole was mounted on four solid wheels, each eight cubits high. He also constructed very large battering rams and two penthouses to carry them. On the lower levels of the Helepolis, he mounted all sorts of ballistae, the largest of them capable of hurling missiles weighing three talents. On the middle levels, he placed the largest catapults, and on the highest, his lightest catapults and a large number of ballistae. And he also stationed on the Helepolis more than 200 men to operate these engines in the proper manner. That man's got catapults on top of catapults, and he's catapulting catapults. Yeah, I, I was kind of with you on the description there. So is this bigger thing he built meant to transport the catapults or to, like, protect and shield the catapults oh, yeah. while they're firing? I think... It's like a giant siege tower. I mean, I've got, I had an image in my head, but in all the games I've yeah. played, that's to move your troops up closer to the wall and like shield them right there. But yeah. this sounds like it was shielding the catapults. Sounds like a giant yeah. artillery machine. I'll look into that, Meredith. I got to be honest with you. I've always seen it exactly how you described it. 
like this is something to get his troops to the wall and then a door drops down mm-hmm. and the troops jump out and that the catapults are there to kind of protect them. Mm. No, this uh, you're you're right. This this gives me the impression that it's all about just demolish and you know it's an yeah. artillery thing. In any case, it's gigantic. Moving on, Demetrius's siege engines indeed did some damage, but it wasn't entirely successful. Ooh, cracking the armor. Because Menelaus set a bunch of them on fire, which killed a lot of Demetrius's men. But then, hearing that Menelaus was in a tight spot, his brother Ptolemy sailed to Cyprus with a fleet of 140 ships. He and Demetrius talked trash for a little bit, each one of them warning the other one that they needed to retreat. Finally, when both sides refused to back down, a huge battle took place. Remember the last time Demetrius met Ptolemy? The embarrassing defeat at the Battle of Gaza? Yep. Yeah, so this was definitely a a rematch or a grudge match. And indeed, it's good news if your name is Demetrius for 306. Because Demetrius scores a stunning naval victory that year over Ptolemy at the Battle of Salamis. Apparently, this victory was so significant that it crippled Ptolemaic naval power in the Mediterranean for years. And Demetrius kept up the momentum of this victory by succeeding in conquering Cyprus and even capturing one of Ptolemy's sons. Furthermore, possibly the greatest treasure. After capturing Salamis, Demetrius also met a captive woman named Lamia, with whom he fell deeply yeah. in love. I remember her from Antigonus's episode. Okay. You're going to you're going to hear a lot about her today. Not a wife though, just a concubine. Nope, nope, never a wife. Very close friend. A really special buddy. As we may recall, this victory had even bigger ramifications as it was the direct precursor to a huge announcement. It was this victory supposedly that was the catalyst for Antigonus to make the move of declaring himself king also naming his son Demetrius as co-king. Let's move on to 305. But wait a minute. We're forgetting something. Demetrius had previously asked the island city of Rhodes for help against Ptolemy, but they declined. Then Demetrius went and demolished the Ptolemaic navy and succeeded in the conquest of Cyprus without the Rhodians' help. What do you think he's going to do now? Is Rhodes about to become our new Thebes? Ooh, let's check. Well, in 305, the now king, Demetrius, decided to punish the Rhodians for their disloyalty and besiege the city. He wasn't taking any chances and decided to appeal to his creative side once again by building his ginormous siege weapons to take the city. One of his new inventions, for instance, were giant spiked logs that he just tossed into the Rhodian harbors to prevent them from attacking his ships. And it was the ingenuity at this siege that gave him the nickname Polyorcates, the besieger of cities. We have some more descriptions, including more description of the Helepolis. First of all, there was a battering ram that was 180 feet, 55 meters long, and required 1,000 men to operate. And then we see another mention of the siege tower on wheels, the Helepolis, the taker of cities, which was, according to this account, 125 feet, 338 meters tall, 60 feet, 18 meters wide, and weighed 360,000 pounds, 160,000 kilos. This is massive. Demetrius was going to make sure that the Rhodians had no chance. This is probably because that earlier refusal to help was a stain on his honor. This is common in the ancient world, though. Especially when you choose the losing side, there are consequences. So Demetrius has a bone to pick, and he wants Rhodian bones. Now he's got these massive siege engines. 
the likes of which the world had never seen. And he lays siege to Rhodes for the better part of the year. And he fails. Okay, see, I was wondering if we were building to that because all of the siege engines and everything, that just seems like overkill to a point of dysfunction. Like, what good is a battering yeah. ram that takes a thousand people right. to hit? Or, I mean, to operate. I want you to hold on to that thought because that actually is going to come up later. In a performance review with his father. <laughs> now, I see here that you built a 360,000-pound siege engine. Can you, can you tell me what you were thinking with that? <laughs> and how do you think, moving forward, that we can be you know, more efficient with our use of resources? Like his dad probably did the compliment sandwich. You know, you got... A compliment, criticism, a compliment is like, compliment, uh, you really go all the way. Criticism, you go too far. <laughs> compliment, I can depend on you to go too far every time. <laughs> um, so let's see how he fails. Uh, he makes repeated assaults on the Rodians, but each time they're able to repel his attacks. Finally, the Rodians received reinforcements from Ptolemy. By late 305, early 304, Demetrius finally gives up on the siege of Rhodes and decides to return to Athens. When he departed, however, you're going to get this, this is great, Demetrius left behind the massive siege weapons he had constructed to, to besiege Rhodes. Well, the Rhodians decided to celebrate. They dismantled the weapons and used the materials to construct a massive commemoration of their victory over Demetrius. And that construction became the Colossus at Rhodes, one of the seven wonders of the world. That's just got a sting. <laughs> that is, that sucks. Oh, God. <laughs> it's like in the office when Michael had gum in his hair, like, this just sucks. I mean, that's just, that's the gift that keeps on giving right there because, like, people coming in from miles away can see a giant statue of a god that's basically just giving Demetrius the finger. Like, all right, let's take it to 304. But, I mean, whatevs. Demetrius is back in Athens now. You can't win them all. At this point, Athens was being threatened by Cassander, and they sent an urgent request to Demetrius for his help. And indeed, he arrives and absolutely demolishes Cassander. Not only does Demetrius relieve the siege of Athens, but he just keeps on going. He proceeds to capture a number of islands and cities, and he keeps pushing Cassander north to the point where he's on Macedon's doorstep. And of course, every step of the way, Demetrius is declaring the freedom of the Greeks with every city he takes from Cassander. In response to this, the Athenians declare even more honors for Demetrius. They gave him a private room in the Parthenon, where supposedly Athena herself, who they totally said was Demetrius's older sister, lived with him. But Plutarch says that Demetrius did not treat his lodgings as honorable and sacred like he should have. For instance, he partied nonstop in the Parthenon and even shacked up there with four of his favorite prostitutes. But the Athenians also declared that Demetrius was the only true god and that all other gods were asleep, absent, or weren't really gods at all. He was declared to be the son of Poseidon and Aphrodite, because he was just so pretty. Oh, this is rich. I mean, he's doing all this on behalf of his father. 
So why wasn't Antigonus getting loaded up with all these honors and titles and things like that? Is it just because Demetrius is the one that's physically there doing it? It's got to be it. It's kind of like he's the guy that liberated us. Yeah, they're honoring Antigonus with some of this, but the person on the ground doing it, it's Demetrius. Mm -hmm. I think it's because he's Antigonus' successor. You know, it's clearly lined up that way, so it's like, this guy's going to be it. But yeah, I really hope this kind of praise doesn't go to his head. Well, it sounds like it's already there. Well, nevertheless, if you'd like to give me the same praise and honors as Antigonus, I would not object, just to let you know. Can't risk it going to your head like that. Oh. Oh. Well, I take that as a compliment, Mm -hmm. because... That means I'm so wonderful that we can't um, corrupt me. Can't risk it. Yeah. Okay, so we're now at 303. For the next two years, Demetrius is just living his best life at Athens. So let's talk about it. It's fitting that you and I are knee-deep in the throes of our trash TV obsessions. You know, 90 Day Fiance, Real Housewives of Salt Lake City, and Sister Wives. Because we're fancy people. Because that's kind of the vibe we're going to get here with Demetrius. Polygamy? Oh yeah, the trashiest kind. Furthermore, as a content warning at this part, we are going to deal with suicide and the implication of potential sexual assault, which we are not making light of. For one thing, Demetrius took a liking to a young man named Democles the Handsome. Democles, however, wanted no part in this, but Demetrius sadly wouldn't take no for an answer. One day, Democles was at the public baths when Demetrius came in. Democles felt cornered and trapped. There was no way he could run away, and he couldn't physically resist Demetrius' advances. So, Democles instead took the lid off of one of the hot water cauldrons, like the boiler, and jumped in. (gasps) No! Yeah, taking his own life. Later, we don't know how later, the Athenians would come to look at Democles' action as a mark of honor like the resistance against the depravity of Demetrius. Another time, Demetrius paid the fine of another Athenian citizen in exchange for sexual favors with that man's son. Still like this guy? Oh, I was about to say, I don't know that I've come to like him in this episode, but I am I think I'm losing all ability to. Yeah, it doesn't really give you a lot endearing about him. This is horrible. So, let's let's get stupid. When a law was passed that prohibited people from bringing personal petitions to Demetrius, Demetrius found out about this and he was furious. In response, the Athenians not only rescinded the law, but they actually executed some of the people who had supported it. Instead, they passed a new law that whatever King Demetrius should order in the future should be considered righteous toward the gods and just towards men. Whatever I say is right. It's kind of given me, I guess, a, a precursor to, you know, further into the future of like the whole motto of the monarchs of Great Britain is like God's will in mind. Yeah. Other citizens were exiled for even daring to speak against the supporters of Demetrius. But hey, Demetrius can't party forever, right? He's got a job to do. He is a conqueror. He is a warrior. So Demetrius proceeded out of Athens to campaign in the Peloponnesus, the southern chunk of Greece. And hey, credit where credit's due. Plutarch says that not one of his enemies opposed him, but all abandoned their cities and fled. City after city surrendered to Demetrius. A lot of it, to be fair, was because Demetrius was able to bribe the garrisons to surrender. He even supposedly beat the Spartans in a brief battle. 
at one of these cities that he conquered, Argos, in an effort to consolidate his influence in Greece, Demetrius pulled a Cody Brown again and was like, let's get married a third time. And it was there that he married a young lady named Daedamea, daughter of Iocades and sister of Pyrrhus, king of Epirus. Do you remember her by chance? That was uh, baby Alex's fiance. Very good. Yeah, well, as you know, that, um, that marriage was canceled because the groom was killed in 310. Now, you may be saying to me, wait, isn't he already married to Phila? Phila and... Eurydice. So you're like, is he just going to sister wife it? Yep. Were they okay with it? Probably not. And he did it anyway? Oh, yeah. That's horrible? Yes. Yes, it is. But, hey, the stupidity's not over yet. While in the Peloponnesus, Demetrius, oh, you're going to love this. Demetrius decided that one city, Sicyon, well, he straight up told them that they built their city in the wrong place and just told them to move it. That city had been there for over a thousand years. What's that Roman emperor where it's like, we didn't lose Dacia, we just moved it. Oh, Trajan or Hadrian or something. Yeah, Demetrius just walks in. He's like, nah, y'all are supposed to be over here. So guess what the Sicyonians did? They moved. As fast as they could. <laughs> they moved the city. <laughs> Beyond that, he even persuaded them to change the name of the city. You want to guess what they named it? Demetriolopolis. Demetrios. I was... Oh, no, that's just his name. No, no, it's fair. No, it's fair. No, it's Demetrios with an A. Oh, so different. Yeah, very well. One vowel for the other. But don't worry. Diodorus says that later they changed their name back to Sicyon. But oddly enough, they actually kept the city in the same place. That Demetrius told him to move it to, so... Well, I mean, moving is a pain. But let's move on to a very important subject. Let's talk about Lamia, one of his most important paramours. As we will recall, Demetrius initially met her after his victory over Ptolemy at Salamis. To quote Plutarch, Among this loot was the celebrated Lamia, originally held in esteem for her artistic skill. She was thought to play the flute quite admirably. But afterwards... She became illustrious in the annals of love. At this time, at any rate, although she was past her prime and found Demetrius much younger than herself, she so mastered and swayed him by her charms that he was a lover for her alone, but a beloved for all other women. So let's talk about Lamia. First of all, let's just go ahead and get it out of the way. Apparently Lamia was uh, a really good flute player. I think they're making a uh, double entendre there. Yeah, I mean, that was my first thought. Yeah, I think that was everyone's first thought. Speaking of immaturity, uh, Demetrius and Lysimachus eventually got into an insult contest. So as we know from Antigonus's episode, after he declared himself and his son Demetrius to be kings, all the other commanders did the same thing. Well, apparently Demetrius thought they were all copycats. Instead, Demetrius loved it when his friends would joke and only refer to Demetrius and his dad Antigonus as kings, but to Seleucus as master of the elephants, Ptolemy as the admiral, Lysimachus as treasurer, and Agathocles of Sicily as lord of the islands. When most of the other kings heard this, they all laughed. Except for Lysimachus. He took the insult to mean that Demetrius had called him a eunuch. For you see, treasurers were usually eunuchs. So Lysimachus did the mature thing and started talking trash about Demetrius' lady friend, saying that it was the first time he had ever seen a whore on the public stage. In response to this, Demetrius said that his whore was more chaste than Lysimachus' wife. 
pretty big burn. <laughs> Damn. According to Plutarch, but among the many lawless and shocking things done by Demetrius in the city at this time, the one thing that is said to have given the Athenians most displeasure was that he demanded the Athenians give him 250 talents so that Lamia and her friends could buy soap and cosmetics. That's some really expensive body wash right there, man. But then this one time, Lamia made this grand and lavish dinner for Demetrius, and she made the Athenian people pay for it. And apparently it was so lavish and expensive that they wrote poetry about it. Have you ever been to a dinner so good they wrote a poem about it? No, but I do have certain meals that I still think about at least once a week. Apparently, like I said, it was so lavish people wrote poetry about it. One comic poet called Lamia the real city taker in reference to Demetrius's famous siege engines. Another guy called Lamia a child-eating sea monster. Because apparently there is an actual myth about a child-eating sea monster snake thing named Lamia. This other time, when Lysimachus was uh, talking to some of Demetrius' ambassadors, Lysimachus was bragging about fighting lions and showing off his scars. Demetrius' ambassadors then started laughing and said that their king also had bite marks on his neck from a dreadful wild beast. A Lamia! Now let me tell you, you might think Demetrius was ageist, because he didn't like that Phila was so much older than him. But Plutarch says that Demetrius loved Lamia dearly. Long after, and I have to emphasize, I'm quoting Plutarch here, she was past her prime. And just so everyone knows that I'm not being choosy with the translation, Plutarch refers to Lamia as parikmakuias, which means past the prime, such as in terms of fruit, trees, wine, or beauty. So once again, dang Plutarch, you sexist. But I tell you this story specifically, because we about to get some drama. You see, Demetrius had many loves in his life, including another lady named Demomania. And yes, that is her real full name, according to Plutarch. Well, one night, as the story goes, Lamia was playing the flute at dinner. Demetrius asked Demo what she thought of Lamia. And Demo said, I think she's old. Another time, when Demetrius bragged about how many presents he got from Lamia, Demo said, yeah. My mom will give you more presents if you make me your mistress, too. Fun fact, you know, Demo herself was apparently very attractive one time, and this is literally what the sources say. Demetrius asked Demo to show him her backside, and she only did it in return for a present or a gift, which he was happy to give her. Well, but I mean, this couldn't get any more trashy, right? Yeah, we could add in like a fourth wife. So we could have some sisters, stuff like that. You're getting close. Yeah, apparently Demo liked to keep it in the family. Remember that story? Oh, her mom? No. Well, no. She, she already said my mom would give right. you a lot of gifts. I see what you're thinking. That makes sense. It's sad that it makes sense to me. But no, it went a different direction. Demo apparently had affairs with Demetrius and his dad, Antigonus. And supposedly Antigonus was a jealous boy. He may have had a son with Demo. He may have even killed one of Demetrius' friends and some of Demo's servants just because he was mad about her carrying on with his son. But I thought we said that was all largely down to rumors because we didn't really give Antigonus anything for that in his episode. Still a pretty bad rumor. Okay. Yeah, I'm just telling you stories. Okay. But by early 302, Demetrius went and did something that would annoy the crap out of Meredith. This is it. In 302, Demetrius reestablishes the League of Corinth. It's the stupidest thing. Yeah, it is. 
We will recall that the League of Corinth was originally created by Alexander the Great's dad, Philip II, in late 338 to early 337. The League was a farce. On paper, it represented a voluntary alliance of major Greek cities. King of Macedon was to be the hegemon of the League, its commander-in-chief. Supposedly everyone had an equal vote in the alliance, but in reality, the Macedonian king was on top. So the League was more or less moribund and defunct after Alexander the Great's death. So Demetrius is hearkening back to a previous time of stability in Greece and Macedonian society. Oh, and Demetrius was immediately voted the hegemon or commander-in-chief of the Corinthian League. And I know that you, in particular, Meredith, will be happy to hear that we actually have an inscription of the decree re-establishing the League. But don't worry, here's just a snippet. There is to be friendship and alliance for all time between those sharing in the Sanhedrion, and Antigonus and Demetrius, so that they have the same enemies and friends by land and sea. It's a fragmentary inscription, but there you go. Definitely a PR move designed to make the Greeks look at him and his dad, Antigonus, as liberators, not conquerors. But one thing we're going to learn about Demetrius today is that he has a tendency to take a great opportunity and absolutely flush it down the toilet. Like it's rarely circumstance and it is usually his fault. But while the reformation of the Corinthian League was no doubt uh, done for PR reasons, it was also an accurate reflection of the political situation in Greece at the time, especially in regard to relations with Cassander and Macedon. By 302, it became apparent to Cassander not only that he had completely lost control of central and southern Greece, but that Demetrius was speedily approaching Macedon's borders. It was for this reason, then, that Cassander attempted to open negotiations with Demetrius and Antigonus. Antigonus, however, refused to entertain anything less than an unconditional surrender from Cassander, causing negotiations to break down. But it did lead Cassander to get the old band back together from the third war of the Diadochoi, that is, Lysimachus. Seleucus and Ptolemy, and they started coordinating their efforts to get rid of Antigonus once and for all. But hey, we're not done partying yet! That's right, folks, when Demetrius got back into Athens, he wanted another special honor. This time, Demetrius wanted to be initiated into the Eleusinian Mysteries, a very secretive cult dedicated to the worship of Demeter and Persephone. Yeah, I think I've heard of that one, actually. Yeah, it was very, like, very important in Athenian society. The thing is, however, there are grades and ranks inside the cult, and Demetrius wanted to be initiated immediately to the highest rank, called the Epoptica. Now, although this was not at all legal, there was also a bit of a scheduling problem. They could get past the legal thing, that wasn't an issue, but uh, the calendar, that messed them up. You see, the lower and higher initiation rites were performed on specific months, which essentially resulted in them being a year apart. Well, this was no problem, because Demetrius's main supporters, a guy named Stratocles, he just moved around the names of the months so Demetrius could move straight to the top. So, like, one month was this, and then, like, when the other month came, they're like, okay, change that name. Now that one? Okay, buddy, go right ahead. Right to the top. Oh, no, I, I get what you were saying. Okay. I was just thinking, of like, what could I do with this power to just make every single day, Saturday to Sunday to Saturday to Sunday to Saturday to Sunday? Or, yeah, basically it's just like it's your birthday, and then all of a sudden it's Krimbus. Yeah. And for context, you're born in July, so that makes sense. <laughs> July to Christmas, although that's probably when Jesus was actually born, but nevertheless. Yeah. <laughs> Thus, a poem went around about Stratocles and Demetrius. 
They love their poetry. Who changed the whole year into a single month? Who changed the Acropolis into a motel and introduced whores to the virgin goddess? The answer is Tradicles and Demetrius. Okay, but again, I think I've said it three times, Demetrius can't party forever in Athens. Negotiations with Cassander had broken down as we saw. Hostilities between him and Demetrius resumed. And Demetrius invaded Thessaly, northern Greece, which is getting pretty close to Macedon's doorsteps. Demetrius and Cassander squared off against each other for a while, but Cassander was definitely on the defensive, and all he could try to do was to hold Demetrius back. Unfortunately, Demetrius seemed to be chipping away at Cassander's lines, hopping around by sea and gradually taking city after city and kicking out Cassander's garrisons. According to Diodorus, Cassander was indeed grossly outnumbered, with his army of around 31,000 being dwarfed by Demetrius's supposed army of over 57,000. This included regular soldiers, mercenaries, but also the entire military might of the Greek cities enrolled in the Corinthian League. Cassander's in a tight spot. But wait, remember, the whole time Demetrius has been in Greece, the Fourth War of the Diadochoi was raging in the east. And the coalition of Cassander, Lysimachus, Seleucus, and Ptolemy were coordinating their efforts. Thus, by 302, Antigonus was also in a tight spot. A tight spot indeed. Mostly Lysimachus, but also Seleucus, and even some of Cassander's forces had pulled Antigonus deep into Anatolia and surrounded him. Faced with this predicament, Antigonus summoned Demetrius from Greece to reinforce his position in Anatolia. So, immediately, Demetrius made a hasty truth with Cassander. Real enough that both sides could save face, but not real enough that either of them expected it to last. And, like a dutiful son, Demetrius left Greece to go help his dad in Anatolia. But like we can make a state farm joke. Like a good son, Demetrius is there. Demetrius comes across much better in the episode from Antigonus's point of view, because I'm just like, oh, he's such a wonderful son, just off taking care of things for dad. Now he's running back to help take care of dad. But I'm like, oh, now that I know how he was spending his time. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Antigonus would not have been proud. I wonder if the Athenians are going to miss Demetrius now that he's gone. Absolutely not. Hmm. Come back to that. Well, we know what happened next. Antigonus was soundly defeated at the Battle of Ipsus. And it was kind of Demetrius's fault. Just like an earlier battle at the start of his career, Demetrius was in command of one of Antigonus' cavalry wings. Whereas the center, commanded by Antigonus, was struggling, Demetrius' cavalry was victorious. Carried away by this momentum, Demetrius chased the enemy off the battlefield, but, oh no, he lost contact with the main body of Antigonus' army. Back at the center, Antigonus was on the verge of defeat, but refused to retreat, insisting that Demetrius would come to their rescue. But he never came back, and Antigonus was killed. Realizing that Dad was dead and the battle was lost, Demetrius gathered what forces were left and retreated to the Greek city of Ephesus in Asia Minor. But don't worry. Demetrius might be down, but he's not out. And his story continues in our next episode. How about some social media stuff, Meredith? And if you enjoyed our show, please leave us a rating or a review wherever you listen to podcasts. You can follow us on Facebook at the Alexander Standard Podcast, Instagram at Alexander Standard Pod, X, formerly Twitter, at Alexander Standard Pod, Blue Sky at Alex Standard Pod, and then you can always email us at alexanderstandardpod at gmail.com. So if you want to find out what happens to Demetrius... 
We'll see you next time on The Alexander Standard.